Happy New Year. Looks like you guys could use a little encouragement. So I want you to look at the person next to you and say, it will eventually warm up, all right? So I want you to, because it is chilly. I got in my car this morning, at, and it said minus 10, minus 10. And I'm thinking, why do I live in New England? I could find something to do in Florida. But anyways, but we are glad that you are here. Maybe we have some folks joining us from Florida on Facebook Live this morning or, or sometime during this next week. You know, I, I, I learned an age-old lesson again this week. You know, what, one, of the, one of the things that we know just instinctively, and educators have brought to the forefront for us, is that our learning is connected to asking questions and then finding the answers. And the more engaged we are in the questions, the more that we actually learn. And so it's important for us to be asking the right questions and then actually going through the journey of discovering the answers. And the reason I learned that lesson this week is I've been asking myself the question, I wonder how much oil I have left in my tank. And so yesterday afternoon, after thinking that question several times over the last month or so, I finally opened up the closet in our basement where the oil tank was, and the thing was laying on top of the tank, you know, the, the little gauge thing. Fortunately, the furnace was still working, which I turned off immediately, and we called 276 gallons of oil later. I think we have like a 220-gallon tank, so that tells you how low we were, and, 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 and $125 emergency service fee. So next time I'm asking myself the question, how much oil is in my tank? I'll be much more motivated to go find the answer, right? And um, believe it or not, we hadn't gotten oil since April. So anyways, I, you know, how, how I went that. We have a wood pellet, so all that kind of stuff. But all of that to introduce us to the fact that spiritually it's really important for us to ask questions. It's spiritually important for us to be interested enough in finding the answers to the questions and also getting the right answers to the questions. So for a short season here as we begin 2018, I want to look at some of the great questions that the Bible presents to us. And with that, also to discover and learn the answers that it gives us to those questions. Now, it's interesting to me that so often we are fascinated by the answers to our questions that the Bible doesn't give us, right? I mean, I mentioned one of those this week in in my column, you know, where, you know, we're one of the things that we're often fascinated with, well, well, where do the wives for Cain and Abel come from, right? You know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, so where do their wives come from? Well, the Bible doesn't want to give us that answer, but we get fascinated with the question, right? When I'm in Rwanda, you know, a couple of years ago, we talked through the book of Genesis. And the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis is on the life of Joseph, right? A couple interludes here and there, but but Joseph, you know, was sold off into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. And the first guy who picks him up in, in Egypt is a guy by the name of Potiphar. And he's, he's, he's the captain of the palace guard, serves the Pharaoh. And David gets himself, due to no fault of his own, at crosshairs with Potiphar and his wife. And he finds himself in prison, right? So David eventually rises up through the, through the ranks. And he is the most important person in Egypt outside of Pharaoh. And so it's interesting, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm teaching this book to the pastors in Rwanda, and their most compelling question that they had out of the life of Joseph was, what happened when he and Potiphar met again? You know, in other words, Potiphar is the palace guard, certainly they met some, well, what happened? You know, did they, you know, and, and it's like, well, it doesn't tell us. But we get fascinated 
with the questions that we have of the Bible that it doesn't give us answers to. And often I think we are ignorant of the questions the Bible asks us and then gives us answers to. And they are very fundamental ones. And today I want to look at, I think, the, uh, what I would consider to be the granddaddy of them all, right? The, the, the question that is presented to us in a real-life experience, a circumstance in the life of an individual, provides us with an opportunity to consider the greatest question that we can ask ourselves and also to consider the answer that God gives us in his word. And that is this question. What must I do to be saved? Or flipping it over, and we'll look at this in just a minute, flipping it over to the way it's presented to Jesus on several occasions, occasions is simply the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Those are actually two forms of the same question. What must I do to be saved? And what must I do to have eternal life? Those two things are actually the same question stated in a different way, and the Bible gives us a very profound answer to that. And I'd love for you to grab your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. So we're going to be in the book of Acts today. If you're using one of our Bibles that's underneath your chairs, you can uh, find this on page 942. really encourage you to follow along because the dynamic of what happens here plays a key role in the way that this question is presented to us and the way we encounter it. So... Let me kind of big, you know, God doesn't work in a vacuum, right? God always, God is working in history, directing history. He's sovereign over history, and so he's working. And so there's this journey that's been going on in the book of Acts, and, and they kind of get where we are in the midst of this journey. In Acts chapter 15, there was this big powwow that took place in Jerusalem that we know is the Jerusalem Council. And what had happened was that during Paul's first missionary journey, there had been such a large response to the gospel among those who were not Jewish, in other words, what the Bible would call Gentiles, that it created this big question about how are Jewish people and Gentile people going to be able to relate to each other in the same church? And so how could they have this connection? Because they're very different, right? Dietary laws, the whole nine yards, and et cetera. And so, so they had this big powwow of what was going to take place. And, and what were the requirements? And from that, the, the missionary journey began to go back on. The gospel was going back out into the world. And at that point in time, Paul and Barnabas, who had been working together, had decided to part ways because Barnabas wanted to give a guy by the name of John Mark, the author of our third gospel, who had, who had basically wimped out in the first missionary journey and gone home. He wanted to give John Mark a different, another chance and Paul says, like, what we're doing is too important. He can, he can go figure that out somewhere else. But we, and so they couldn't come to an agreement, so they parted. And Paul left with a guy by the name of Silas. And he headed off, and he went north and then a, out, of, out of Jerusalem, and then he went across the area that we would know today as modern-day Turkey. In those days, it was known as Galatia and some other places. And, and, and it was interesting that as they're traveling, God just wasn't providing any opportunity for the gospel. They go into various communities along the way. Nothing happened. God was closing the door. So Paul gets to a certain part in Turkey, and he wants to go north towards the Black Sea into an area that we would know as in, in, in the ancient world as Bithynia. And, 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 and he has a travel agent by the name of the Holy Spirit who says, now nah, you don't want to go there. I want to see, you want to go someplace else. So he keeps following his travel guide, his travel agent, the Holy Spirit. He makes his way down 
to the west coast of Turkey on the Aegean Sea, and then he set sail up to an area in Europe known as Macedonia, the city of Philippi, because he had a vision from God of a guy from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Come over and help us. So they arrive in this city known as Philippi, right on the coast. And, and Philippi was a Roman colony. I know I'm giving you some background ground information, but I think, this is, I think it's healthy for us to understand the scripture and then the, the points that come from it. And so Philippi was a city that the Romans had built for their retired soldiers to go live in. You serve in the legions, you fight our battles all around the world. When the time comes, we're going to give you a nice piece of land right, on, right around the fringes of a nice city that we built for you. And Philippi was one of those cities. It was a Roman city. And so Paul makes his way there with Silas. And, and there's obviously, we, from the impression we get, there's not enough Jews in the city of Philippi to actually create a synagogue because you had to have a certain number of male Jews to be able to establish a synagogue. It was a regulation. So when they didn't have enough of those, what they would generally do is they would go out to someplace outside the city close to a river or a body of water, and they would have a place of prayer. So Paul and Silas arrive there, and on the first Sabbath, they make their way out to what they would assume would be a place where, where, where people would be gathering to, to pray. And, and they have this wonderful God-led encounter with a woman by the name of Lydia, who was a, a successful merchant in the city of Philippi, and she and her household come to know Christ. And so now they have a place to live. She begs them to come stay and say, use my house as a mission base to impact our city with the gospel. And that's what Paul begins to do, and he has a place to function out of. And that's where we pick up our story. And I'd love for you to follow along in your Bibles as I read this to you, and I'll, I'll make a few comments on some things, draw out a few things, some observations as we go along. So, so Paul and Silas have settled into Lydia's household, and they're ministering, serving in the city of Philippi. And so in verse 16 of chapter 16, it says, Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us, who had a spirit of prediction. So this is a, a girl who, who was, had some form of possession, demon possession, but the results of that was that, it, that um, she was able to foretell the future, right? She had a spirit of prediction. And so she was making a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. And as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Now, just, just as a case in point, in case there's any clarification, if any of you want to follow me around through the building on a Sunday morning yelling out, all right, this man is a, a slave of the Most High God, you're welcome to it, right? Just don't do it during my sermons, but any other time it's okay, right? But, and so she's doing this for many days. And Paul gets greatly aggravated. And it was an interesting question. So, well, why is he aggravated? I mean, isn't this good publicity, right? You know, you've got this woman who has a reputation of being able to have insight, but she's demon-possessed, and somehow or another that possession gives her a sense of spiritual discernment, and she's crying out, you know, these men are slaves of the Most High to God, and they're telling you how to be saved. They're telling you how to have a relationship with God, and Paul gets aggravated. Right, you think, man, you can't buy better publicity. So why, why in the world would Paul get aggravated? And, and the answer, we really don't know for sure. But let me give you a couple suggestions. 
Because I sometimes like to ask the Bible questions it doesn't want to answer either, right? So, so one reason is I think Paul just didn't want the gospel associated with a freak show, right? I mean, she just, this is, this is like, you know, going to the carnival and, you know, the person who's nine feet tall or this or that or the woman with the long beard or whatever it is, you know, this, this is kind of what it's like. He's, he doesn't want the gospel, what God has actually done in history in the person of Jesus Christ associated with a freak show, so he just, he's aggravated, and he casts a demon out of her. Could be that, that Paul also just didn't want the gospel to kind of lay on the table with the, at the same level with all the false religions, and some of that related to the special spirit that she had. You know, he, he, you know we're, not, we're not talking about the kind of stuff that you see with your miniature temples all across your city of Philippi. We're talking about the God who sits on the throne of the universe. And he didn't want the two really associated. I think some of it has just got annoying. And I don't know if she had a squeaking high voice or whatever, or he starts to speak and she starts yelling, or he just couldn't think straight or whatever. But after a while, he just has enough of this over a few days. And so what he does is, it's, as we pick up in, in verse 18, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her right away. So she's freed from the demon possession. Now, that probably would have made her family happy. It didn't make her owners happy. I mean, because she was an asset. This is the way that they made money, okay? She was, this, this was as vital to her as the truck that pulled into my driveway was last night to the oil company that charged me a surcharge for my emergency call, right? I mean, without the truck, you're not going to make any money. Without her ability to tell the future, they couldn't make any money. So they're, they're not happy. So when her owner saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and, they, and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. Now, you're going to notice they didn't go in and say, these guys destroyed our business. That's not what they said. Right? They, you know, we, we had this girl, we, she was, we had her under contract, she belonged to us, and she was making us a fortune, and they cast the demon out, and they ruined our business. That's, that's not what they said. What they said was, based upon what they've been hearing out of Paul, and Silas, and others who were teaching in the city about Christ, saying what these guys are calling us to do isn't lawful in the eyes as Roman citizens for us to do. And, and the core of it was probably this, was that it was the responsibility and it was the, the, it, it, it was the command, it was, it was an obligation of a Roman citizen to think about Caesar as Lord. And Paul was calling upon the people in the city of Philippi because of who Jesus was and what he had done to recognize that Jesus truly is Lord. And so when he was calling upon them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was, they interpreted that to mean is that you're trying to say we should have greater allegiance to Jesus than we do to Caesar, and that would make us, that would cause us to break the law, we would be treasonous, and etc. But for the most part, they're just reaching for straws because they're just mad and they want these guys to pay. 
But the crowd knew enough of what was going on. Probably there was enough anti-Semitism as well. They, did, they just picked up with the crowd, and then the magistrates get dragged along. And the next thing you know, Paul and Silas are, 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 are just having, they're just getting beat up. You know, they, they pull out the rods, and they're pounding them with sticks and et cetera. And then they take them, as we read along in the story. So, so the mob joined in the attack against them. And the chief magistrate stripped them of their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. So receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So here's this picture of Paul and Silas. They're thrown into the inner prison. Their feet are stuck in these stalks along the ground. They, they're, 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 they're sitting up, but if they lie down, their wounds and all their blood and everything else and bruises are mixed in with the dirt that's on the ground and et cetera. I mean, it's just not a pleasant picture. So they start to whine and complain. No, they don't. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So they were praying and as we know through the rest of the story, they, they, they really weren't praying for their release. Because when the release comes, they don't go. <laughs> right? So they're praying, probably praying that God would give them boldness to speak. And they're singing him. They're, they're praising God in song. And the prisoners were listening to them. Well, they didn't have much option, but they were listening to them. Right? Because they're all chained up like the rest of them. So suddenly there's a violent earthquake. That the foundations of the, of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. And this isn't the first time that we've seen a dramatic delivery from prison in the book of Acts. You know, earlier in the book, in Acts chapter 5, all the apostles are rounded up after, you know, um, uh, the, the, Peter and... Um, Peter and John heal the, 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 the lame man and the gospel spreads and they're threatened and they, don't fall, they, don't, they, they keep speaking in the name of Jesus. So they arrest all the apostles and in the middle of the night an angel just leads them out. And the next morning they're back out in the, in the, in the temple teaching the scriptures to people. A little later in chapter 12, Peter's been sentenced to death. He's in prison waiting his execution the next morning, and he's in such a deep sleep that the angel has to shake him a couple, three times before he can get him to go out the door, right? And, and so we've seen some dramatic supernatural deliveries from, history, from, from prison in the book of Acts, but this is not what this story is about, because this story is not about physical deliverance. It's about spiritual deliverance. Just follow along in the text. So suddenly there's this violent earthquake that the such that the foundations of the jail were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. They, they probably had the bar type things that went across because locks weren't really developed until the 1800s. And, and so the, just in the rattling up and down, it just pops out and comes off and opens the door. The, the chains would have been secured to the kind of the mud block and just with the shaking and stuff, they, they come loose. And, and, so, and, and so when the jailer wakes up and he saw the doors of the prison house open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. And we need to understand there that it was the Roman expectation was that if you were a jailer and they were paying you to be the jailer and your prisoners escaped, then you died. That's the way it worked. You kept them secured. And if you didn't do your job, you died. 
And so when he gets up in the middle of the night, still kind of groggy from sleeping, and he sees the prison doors open, he's thinking, they're all gone. And, and just in a minute, he said, they're not going to kill me nicely. They're going to torture me for days until I die. I would rather fall on my own sword and get it over with quick than to put up with what they're going to do to me, to, to, to set an example you know, of me. And so he's ready to fall on his sword, but lo and behold, it's not about physical deliverance, because in verse 28, Peter, Paul calls out in a loud voice, don't, don't harm yourselves, because all of us are here. Even though God had opened up the doors and made it possible for them to go, this story is not about physical deliverance. It's about spiritual deliverance. So the jailer called for lights, and he rushes in, and he falls down trembling. I mean, he, he, he's just had a near-death experience. He expected to lose his life. He's fearful. The adrenaline is pumping, and he runs in, and, he, and he's, just, he's just shaking. And he brings them out, and the first thing he says to them is, what happened? That's not what he says. Or, why are you guys still here? Why didn't you run? That's not what he asks. He asks this question, sirs, what do I got to do to be saved? And, and the dynamic going on is that we know what Paul's been preaching in the city, right? You had a slave girl who was demon-possessed who was saying, these guys here, they're telling you the way of salvation, right? And then they're teaching this stuff in the city and, and about the need to be saved and to call on Jesus as Lord. And he finally has this face-to-face death encounter and he, and he sees the whole miracle of the earthquake with the doors being flung open and everybody still being there as validation is these are guys you should listen to. And the question that comes to his mind in his heart is this, what do I got to do to be saved? And, and, and I got to tell you, that's a question that should come to any of our hearts at some point in time. So they give an answer. So they said in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and right away all he, he and all his family were baptized and he brought them up into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had believed God with the entire household. Now, to finish up the story and then come back to our question, the next day, the magistrates say, okay, those guys have paid enough. They can go. So they send some police guys down there saying, go tell the jailer he can let those guys go. And, 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 Paul, and Paul says, we, we ain't going. So we're Roman citizens. What they did to us yesterday was illegal. And they can come down here and they can let us go themselves. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens, that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they said they became very fearful because Romans enjoyed protection of the Roman law no matter where they went inside the empire. And their rights had been violated. And these guys could be in big trouble. So they come down, they're apologetic and et cetera, and Paul leaves. And, and, and Paul's not doing that from a sense of arrogance. What, what Paul is seeking to do is to protect the reputation of the gospel. It's not just some marginalized freaks at the edge of society that believe this stuff, but Roman citizens who enjoy the same privileges, rights, understandings, education, and et cetera, as you guys also believe in this. And so he wanted them to treat Christians in the future with greater respect. 
and to protect the young church that was emerging there, that they would not suffer the same sense of persecution and a violation of their, of their rights, if you will. But we come back to this question of well, what must I do to be saved? And, and, and it's an interesting that the Scripture now presents that question to me and to you. What, what do I need to do to be saved? What do you need to do to be saved? And it's, it's a personal question. I think it's a pressing question. And, and when, you, when you combine that with the other form of it, what must I do to have eternal life? You, you, you see that this question is, how do I get from the state that I'm in, which is something I need to be delivered from, to get to a state that I want to be in, should want to be in, which is the state of having eternal life? How, how do I get there? And so the first part is, what do we need to be delivered from? Right? I mean, the, the idea is, is you don't need to be rescued if you're not in danger. You don't need to be found if you're not lost, right? And I, I told the first service, often when I deal with young children who want to be baptized, you know, kids who are seven, eight, nine years of age, the, the question that really hits me is not whether or not they love Jesus and believe in Jesus. The question that hits me is, are they really lost yet? You know, it's, it's easy which is a good thing for a child to, they love mommy and daddy, they love Grammy and Grampy, you know, they, they, they love Nana, Nana and Papa, right? You know, and, and they love Jesus, and they love the Easter Bunny, and they love the Tooth Fairy, you know, and, and they just love, and that's a good thing, right? But you cannot be saved if you're not lost, and what really comes down to is what do they understand sin to be? Well, the jailer in this moment understood that when he got up to the brink of death, that he was separated from God and he needed to be delivered. Now, Paul here in verse 32 says that, that after he had said, believe in the Lord Jesus, he took some time to explain everything to you. Because I know some of you were thinking, you know, Paul answered his question in four words, but you're taking like 10 minutes. What's up with that? Right? You know, well, I want to point out verse 32 that he took a little extra time after answering the question to provide. And so, Paul would put it this way. He says, the wages of sin is death. Now, we want to think of death physically, and there is that aspect of it. But Paul's referring to the, to the sense of death spiritually. And that means that we are, because of who we are and the exercise of our sinful nature, we have alienated ourselves from a God who cannot tolerate sin. So what that means is while we are still drawing physical breath, we, we, we can be in the arena of God's grace, but we have not been the direct recipient of God's grace, and we are separated and isolated from God. We still can enjoy his, if you will, his, the providence of his grace in the world, but in terms of his saving grace, we are isolated from it, and we are lost. Now, when we cross that threshold of physical death into eternity, the scripture describes eternal death as hell. And and we have all these notions of hell. And it's going to, hell is simply a place where there's absolutely nothing good. There's no joy. There's no love. There's no hope. There's no pleasure. There's no happiness. There's no nothing because there is no God. Death is simply a complete and fulfill, full and eternal separation from God who is all things good. 
So just imagine a life that has absolutely nothing good in it, and that's what you experience for eternity. And that's what we need to be saved from. God has made this provision, if we answer that question correctly, so that we can actually enjoy eternal life. Now, I I don't mean this in an arrogant sense, but as I stand before you, you here this morning, because of my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm already living eternally. Now, I'm hoping that once I die and I get to heaven, I'm going to be a little thinner, got a little bit more hair and some other stuff. But in the meantime, I'm already living eternally because I live in relationship with God because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And so this question of what must I do to be saved necessarily means that there's something we need to be saved from, and that's death, spiritual death. And that what we can be rescued from that and delivered to a state of having Life eternal. And the answer that comes with that is you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, believe there is, it's both a noun and it's a verb, right? You know, in the sense of when we think about belief, there's a certain content that you have to believe. And then believe is also an aspect, it's an action, it's a choice. It's a verb, right? And let me unpack both of these. On the belief side, it's, 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 you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very specific. It's not just a belief in God. It's not just a belief in being good. It's not just, a, you know, I only have to be better than 50% of the people, and then I'm on, you know, then I'm going to be above the curve. If that's not, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those pieces are that he was eternal and is eternal, became a man as a result of the virgin birth, grew, died on a cross without committing a sin, and as God and man, as he hung on the cross, he became the solution to solve all of the issues that God has with the debt that's created that leads us to death. And then he was, as he died on the cross, buried on the tomb, and resurrected on the third day. You have to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus actually is who he says he is and what he did. You can't invent them into somebody that says, well, Jesus is there to make me feel better and get through my heart. No, no, no. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He was the man Jesus, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, the only way. And you have to believe that in its content. the second thing, it's, it's a sense, it's an action. Because belief here is, is a sense of trusting in, of choosing, of giving yourself over to. It's interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching away and the people get to the end and say, well, what do we need to do? He says, you've got to repent. He says, you've got to change where you're headed and go in a different direction. You actually have to do something. You have to change. Belief is to say, I'm going to stop believing in in, in, in my own wisdom and et cetera, and I'm going to start believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to understand that he is the way for me to experience forgiveness that gets me out of death and gets me into life. And those are the answers that come in. And, and, and that's the most important question any of us is ever going to face. And, and I've already told you, in my heart, in my mind, I, I know what I've decided. I, I confronted this question myself with what must I do 
to be saved. And I chose to change the way I was thinking and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all the content and with the commitment of life that backs it up. The real question then is, what are you going to do to be saved? For some of you, this is a wonderful moment to affirm the fact that you truly do stand redeemed, changed, saved. You are the the bearer of eternal life because you personally have chosen to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be wonderfully affirming to you. I would also say to you that this, this, this outline of how to share your faith what must I do to be saved and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I think any of you can memorize that and share it with somebody else. But there's some of you here this morning thinking, I, I don't know if I'd answer that question that way. And you're in a moment much like the Philippian jailer. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to choose to believe? Now, we know that he chose to believe because he went on to express his belief in Christ through the act of baptism. Now, without getting into all the, the New Testament never anticipates that there's per, a person who has chosen to be a follower of Jesus Christ and does not follow that up with being baptized by immersion. If you were to read through the pages of the New Testament, they would never ever think of, never think they would ever encounter anybody who would say, I believe in Jesus, but I've never been baptized. Those two things go together. Because the act of baptism is the confession of the fact that I have chosen to believe, and this is what happened to me when I, was, when I was saved, delivered. But the question comes back to you. What are you going to do to be saved? And it's the most important question. And the answer is you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if that's a decision you're ready to make today, you know, there's a part of me that's tempted to make you, ask you to stand up. We know you're New Englanders, and that's just not what you're going to do, right? But I got to tell you, in just a few minutes, we're going to conclude our service. We're not having a concluding song today, right? We're going to try to do things just a little differently, as Christina said. But as I pray, there'll be some folks who will make their way up to each corner, and they'll be just available to pray with you and just say, you know what? I I, I made that choice today. I've chosen to believe. I'm going to be out in the lobby And I would love to have a chance to visit with you. Even if I don't talk to anybody else, it would be a tremendous privilege and honor just to talk to you about what it means to step over that line and to be saved into eternal life. But this is the moment. Now is the moment to make those choices. Let's pray together. Just wait for a moment of quiet to kind of settle in. God, I would confess to you that there's probably many of us here, myself included, that would feel more worthy to spend eternity with you, to have eternal life, if we had to do something really dramatic to earn it. Some form of great denial or some great achievement or some just unexplainable sense of meritorious and generous service. We'd love to be able to say that we, we, we belong there because we earned it. God, sometimes it's harder for us just to accept a gift, the gift of eternal life.
through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Father, we'd be bold enough today to say, make us really confront this question. What must we do? What must I do to have eternal life, to be saved? And God, compel us with your grace and with your spirit to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity we have today. Even though it may just seem like just so much kind of fancy talk, but that by the simple choice to believe, we can change our eternal destiny. I'm thankful that you did that for the Philippian jailer. I'm thankful you did that for each person who was in this household who heard the message and also chose to believe. God, I'm grateful that you've done that in my life. I pray, Father, that we would experience that ourselves across this room today as we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, our, it's going to serve as the conclusion of our service this morning. There'll be some folks available to pray with you if you'd like to. I'll be out in the lobby. It's cold outside, so feel free to stay and have a cup of coffee and warm up a little bit. And, and if you have a loving husband or a loving friend or whatever, maybe they'll drive your car up front and get it nice and warm for you before you have to run onto it. Those kinds of good things. So, but uh, thanks for being here today. And thanks for the great questions that God gives us and the powerful answers. And you are dismissed. God bless. See you next week. When we look at what is truth, that's our question for next week. What is truth? You are dismissed.